Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 167 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc that just released Dog Works Volume 4. And even better, if you buy any of the Dog Works volumes, you get a free copy of Happy Birthday Lloyd Lore which is a recording that David Grisman put together using Parrot and Crusher, two of his lores, to record some tunes. It's really, really incredible, and it's free if you buy any of the Dogworks recordings. So go to Acoustic Disc now and get yourself a copy of one of the Dogworks, or all four. They're incredible. And it's also brought to you, brought to you by Grace Design Preamps. Grace Design Preamps. Again, there's a reason why you see them on stage with some of your favorite players. If they got to plug in their acoustic instruments, they're most likely plugging it in to a Grace Design Preamp. Check them out. I love mine. It's incredible. Happy Friday, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, I'm pretty excited. Uh, the Charleston Bluegrass Festival just got announced, and my band, New Ghost Town, is going to be playing there again this year. And this year, the lineup's incredible. It's uh, Larry Keel's going to be playing. Leftover Sam is going to be playing. One of the best live bands I have seen in the past year and a half or so, Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway are playing. This is a great lineup. So if you're going to be in the Charleston area, my band is playing on Saturday. I know that. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. So that was pretty exciting news to find out. I also want to congratulate Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh's album number eight on the Billboard Bluegrass chart. That's incredible. So all you who listened to that album or listened to this podcast and went out and bought it, thank you so much. And again, it's just a great example of how just going out and spending the the $10 or whatever they whatever you spend on a, a digital recording, that stuff helps. And now Joe made the Billboard chart. That is so awesome. Congratulations to Joe and everybody who played on that album. So, yeah, that's so amazing to see. This episode really is a close place to my heart. I'm so glad I got connected with Wayne. Um, when I look at the Mandolin Cafe forum or when I get emails from people, and actually even part of the reason why I started this podcast was, was how do you really practice? How do you get productive practice? And Wayne is an expert at this. When you listen to this episode, I mean, man, Wayne has really, really, really put in the hours, maybe 10,000 hours. We talk about that, the 10,000 hour rule on there. And he mentions a bunch of great resources. I have linked all the books there at mandolinsandbeer.com where you can just click the link and you can go and purchase the books he talks about. There's some some uh, technique books, but also a couple books um, about the subject of practice and and actually you're going to find out the, the the practice of sleep or the the act of sleep I guess it would really be but Wayne's great man and he um he's got a bunch of hacks as well and we didn't get a chance to get to them so we're going to work a way into um, having some uh, Wayne's hack of the week coming up here on some of the episodes so and if you want to sign up with lessons for Wayne. Uh, I've linked him to his website right in the description of this podcast. You can click that link and go in, check out his website and sign up for lessons. I'm telling you, th uh, this is next level uh, practice and it makes so much sense. And when you hear even that he has a great example of one of his students and and um, how this example worked in a relatively short period of time for them, it, it's great. So um, check it out. Let's get into our sponsors. 
Peghead Nation, with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. It's got an incredible lineup of instructors. We've got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Billboard Top 10 artist, uh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Curry. I will tell you, I used one of Chad Manning's courses. He's got one on Western Swing Fiddle. It had just come out, so I decided to check it out myself. And it's great, man. I took uh, one of his enclosure exercises and worked on it for a few days, and it, it happened right in my playing then this weekend during my gigs. I noticed it coming up, and it's just great stuff if you want to crack the code on that Western Swing stuff. And again, he plays it on fiddle, but fiddle's just a mandolin with no frets and a bow, essentially. I mean, obviously, it's more than that. But you know what I mean? You can translate it over. The best part of this is you can get your first 30 days for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at NorthfieldMandolins.com. Download their app at MandoSummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And again, don't forget to follow them on Instagram. Great Instagram profile. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins, designed and built in Austin, Texas. Thank you all to everybody at Ellis Mandolins and Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced to beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year. Actually, it'd be 51 years coming up here in July. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, let's get into the episode with Wayne. Cheers, everybody. All right, now it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Mr. Wayne Fugate. Wayne, how's it going? Oh, it's going great, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Um, When we talked on the phone uh, a few days ago, I had the good fortune. I mean, I check the Mandolin Cafe's website. I'm on that website as much as anybody's on whatever their favorite website is. You know, if they're a stock Mm -hmm. person, it's ridiculous. But you can be in a different place. (laughs) Yes. And you had posted an ad that um, about basically having lessons for practice. And I'm like, whoa. And you have these techniques that you have studied and studied. And next to probably straight up like fiddle tune books or technique books, the next largest library on my iPad is books on practice of all sorts. Tennis, anything. I, I find it fascinating. And I myself, I think I'm like a lot of people always trying to optimize my practice. Nobody ever has enough time. And even when you do have enough time, it's almost worse than having not enough time because I don't, I don't know how to use it all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then, you know, to the thing that kind of, you know, the light bulb that went off in my head when I started studying this stuff was, you know, I had been playing for years at that point and it, it occurred to me every lesson I ever took, I was given stuff to practice and told that I should practice it for X amount of time. Uh, during during the course of the week. But then on very, very rare occasion, if at all, did I get the advice of how to go about practicing the material in any kind of a detailed way or a structured way. And, you know, 
if you think of it, you've been paying attention to this, so I'm sure you know. How to practice, I think, is one of the most underserved, if not the most underserved topic in our little um, community of mandolin players and maybe the larger community of folk music in general. I mean, if you go to a music school and, you know, and you're on um, a track for some type of performance degree in, in the classical realm, you know, you get exposed uh, to some of these concepts, um, depending on the program you're in. But in, in our world, nobody really talks about this stuff. And, you know, my journey with it, when I was a kid, I could learn stuff almost faster than you could teach it to me. And I could play it really clean and really fast and with good tone and everything was fine. But, you know, now that I've kind of moved on in years, I've noticed that that isn't, you know, so some of those skills are ebbing a little bit and I want to maintain my edge. So that's really the impetus that, impetus that kind of led me down this, this whole rabbit hole. And it's been fascinating. I'm, I'm super passionate about this stuff and super excited to share um, some of these concepts with, you know, with my students, certainly, and your listeners as well. Oh, this is so great. I mean, again, this is, I, I love all nerdy facets of, of, of mandolin. I love it all. Uh, I can talk <laughs> strings, I can talk picks, but one of the most interesting things to me is the whole, is the whole practice, you know, David Benedict's got some pretty cool stuff on it as well. And I was really excited to, to see your post and to give people a little bit of a background. You also, um, you also have a pretty good, you've had some pretty sweet performance gigs that you've done that have required some uh some some precision type playing <laughs> I've, been, I've been a very lucky mandolin player i um you know, I've, got, I've had the opportunity to play uh with an orchestra at carnegie hall many years ago now but still that was a, a thrill that i'll never forget and then more recently i uh through a series of really wonderful um i don't know accidents i found myself uh playing man the mandolin book on a show written by steve martin and edie brickell that was on broadway the show is called bright star and it wound up being nominated for five tony awards and the soundtrack um was nominated for a grammy for best bluegrass recording and so it certainly had its share of accolades but it ran during the year of hamilton <laughs> and so we got we had a relatively short run as a result, but then again, I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked to uh, to play that book on the on the show's uh, first national tour. So I spent a year uh, traveling around the country and getting the opportunity to do that too. What's the audition process look for like for like a Broadway show? You know, I kind of really lucked into it. There's a wonderful, wonderful uh, guy plays anything that has strings on it. And then a few beyond that, it, his name is Bobby Baxmeyer. And um, Bobby had the uh, the chair for this show. He, he was the primary, the principal mandolin player on this show. But, um, you know, there, on when you play a show on Broadway, you're supposed to have uh, two or three 
subs that can come in and take your your seat at any point in time on relatively short notice um, in case you have some you know unforeseen uh, thing that takes you away from the show a family emergency you get sick what have you so Bobby was having a hard time finding a sub for the show because all the guys he would normally call either had other shows or were they were on tour and so he mentioned this uh, to Kenny Brescia, the guitar player in this show. And Kenny said, hey, I know a guy over in New Jersey who knows a bunch of mandolin players. And so um, he called uh, this this uh, friend of mine over in New Jersey. And uh, that led to another phone call with another friend of mine who said, wait a minute, Broadway, no, I, I, you have to read music and I'm not very good at that. You want to call Wayne. And so literally that's how I lucked into the thing. And um, I had never played theater in, in school. I had never, never, it was just totally not on my vision board. (laughs) It's the last thing I ever expected to do. And, and there I was. And, you know, it was, it was, it was like number one on my bucket list and I didn't even know it was number one. And so I always feel like I'll, I'll owe a tremendous debt of gratitude uh, to Bobby Baxmeyer. And then, you know, everybody that was associated with that show, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Was there a mandolin on every track or did you have to play or on every, in every song or did you play? Yeah. it, it, it's a real unicorn in the world of Broadway musicals. Uh, the, the book consisted of mandolin throughout the show, every tune, except for one where I doubled on guitar. And yeah, but just a complete mandolin book. Other shows, you know, come from away. Um, there's a mandolin book, but it's about 40 to 50% guitar and the remainder is mandolin. And that's typical, you know, other shows, um, you know, the mandolin is there, but maybe for two or three tunes out of the entire show. So Bright Star was really unique um, in that it, it had a complete mandolin book and it was just wonderful to play. I bet. I got asked to do the Godfather one time here in Charleston along with like the movie. And they had like the arc orchestra and uh, I couldn't do it because there was I knew there was no way I would be able to pay attention for the little bit of time that I would have to play. Like I would be daydreaming and 100 percent miss miss a spot. I know it. It, it. it really it really does require focus. I mean, uh, you know, those first couple of performances I did, I don't think I was ever as mentally exhausted after any gig that I had done up to that point in my life. But I also kind of had the feeling that I had never been as exhilarated and psyched and thrilled about an, a, a gig, you know, in the aftermath of having played it. It was just, like I said, just a completely wonderful, thrilling ride that I got to take. And it was that like the um, is that's a pretty usually uh, tough schedule, right? There's is it only one day off, sometimes two shows a day. Yeah, on Broadway, you know, again, I was subbing uh, for somebody. And and as it turned out, I wound up, I'm going to say I probably did somewhere around 30, 40% of the shows on Broadway. Um, um, so, you know, that was kind of manageable. And, and I'd know the schedule, you know, pretty well in advance. 
Um, and then on the tour, there's no concept of subs. You're just, you're there and it's eight <laughs> shows. It's eight shows a week and, um, you, you get Mondays off, but there are shows every, every other day of the week and, and, uh, you know, matinees on the weekend. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing. The, the, the evening, the, the one performance a day shows, those aren't too bad. Um, the, the two a day shows, uh, you need to get a, a good night's sleep, you know, before. Yeah. Ooh. That's, that's yeah. so cool sounding though. You know, talk about a steady gig. <laughs> it was wonderful. Wonderful. Would you do it again? Oh, in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Nice. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about this practicing thing. This is, this is yeah. really got me, this has got me enthralled. I mean, uh, and, and you seem to be so passionate about it. I, I've really been looking forward to this. So let's, let's dig in. Yeah, it really is exciting. You know, I get to see it not only, you know, I employed a lot of this stuff when I was getting ready for this Broadway show. So I've, I kind of used myself as the proving ground for a lot of these uh, strategies, but then, uh, you know, I've also kind of, um, you know, foisted them on my uh, poor students. And um, the ones that embrace this stuff, I, I, I see it time and time again. They, they just kind of get down the path a little further and a little faster than the folks that, you know, either kind of dismiss it or don't want to do it for whatever reason. But I, I, I actually have had one student recently, and in fairness, she came to me with a little bit of musical background, but nothing on mandolin. And she really ate this stuff up and wound up um, after eight months of playing mandolin, taking first place in the Deer Creek uh, Fiddlers Contest down in, in uh, Maryland. So Whoa. that was yeah, that that kind of told me that maybe some of these things were on the right track. So yeah, let's talk about them, right? Right. Yeah. Where do you start? You know, I think it's helpful to understand first that there are two um, kind of broad categories of practicing. Right. There's uh, the type of practicing you do when you want to learn new material or perfect material that you know you've you've kind of put into the hopper, so to speak. And then there's another type of practicing um, that you do when you're getting ready to perform all the stuff that you've learned. And if you think about it, there's really different skill sets and tools that you need to apply uh, to each one of those, right? If, when you're learning a piece of music, it's kind of an iterative process. You're going to play uh, the tune and uh, up to the point where you make a mistake, and then you'll try to figure out how to correct that mistake and then you'll go back and make another run at it and you'll play until something else comes off the rails and you know kind of lather rinse repeat but it's iterative there's a lot of stopping and starting and stopping and starting and that's fine um when you perform material though it's a whole different thing you, when you're actually performing you get you don't get to stop when you make a mistake right that's <laughs> going so when I work with uh, when I work with my students that are getting ready to perform, um, you know, and and the performances range anything from auditions to open mics to you know gigs at at local or regional venues, but you know uh, those skill sets are aimed at helping 
them to, uh, you know, to perform um, in in a situation that it, that will come as close to the the real live event as we can. So I have a lot of fun with simulation practice, where you know I'll have my student run a piece of music from front to back. They're not allowed to stop, no matter what. And then I'll, you know, have my phone ring in the middle of their performance, or I'll, I'll knock a chair over in the middle of their performance, just to get them used to the fact that in a performance, there's bound to be some kind of distraction. And if they've practiced playing through that distraction, hopefully that gives them a little bit of an edge um, towards not having things co go off the rails uh, when it happens in the real, you know, the real event, right? Um, I'll also have them uh, do things like maybe run up and down my flight of stairs a couple of times or, or literally do jumping jacks in the room where we do our lessons. And the idea is I want them to get kind of sweaty and for their heart to be pounding because Dan, what happens when you get on stage in a new venue with a lot of people for the first time? Oh, your adrenaline's out of control. Right? Your your palms are sweaty. Your heart's pounding. If you haven't practiced for that, you know, that can be overwhelming for some folks. So if you practice, um, you know, playing through sweaty hands or, and, and a pounding heart maybe it's not as disorienting when you get to the to the real thing and that type of uh situation takes place so that's what i mean it's it's like a whole different thing than practicing to learn stuff and you know we could probably spend an hour just on that but you know how do you go about learning stuff and and that iterative process and and that's a whole different set of skills and and you know, probably as good a place as any to really start talking about some of this stuff. Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect place, actually, because that's usually where you start, you know, like here's a list. Right. Of, here's some stuff to learn. <laughs> right. So, you know, I think it's also helpful to spend just a, a minute or two on what practice isn't. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so uh, just as a baseline, practice is not just endlessly repeating a tune from front to back and, and trying to get it right. And if you make a mistake, you kind of correct it in that second without much thought. And then you make another run at it and stuff like that. And it's not really, you know, a, a good way to practice. And it's certainly not uh, sitting on your couch, binge watching Netflix noodling or playing tunes that you already know how to play and doing that for an hour or two, right? That's not, if, if, if that's the model you're going to follow to, uh, to get good at playing the mandolin or doing anything really, you're probably going to meet with a little bit of disappointment. So, <laughs> right. Right. You want to definitely avoid those things. So what do we do? First thing is, is kind of a weird one. But it's a really important one. In fact, I, I'm such a believer in this that I would say that if there's only one thing that your listeners take away from, from listening to me here, it's this. Get a good night's sleep. Right? It's so important. It turns out, and there's a great book on this. There's a book called uh, While We Sleep, or Why We Sleep. 
and um, really great book on it. I'll get you the author in just just a second. But um, it turns out that while we're sleeping, one of these things that we do all the time and nobody really thinks about, but there's a whole lot of housekeeping in your brain that takes place while you're sleeping. So, um, and, and it turns out that if you get eight hours of sleep, as we all should, in the last two hours of sleep, the brain is kind of pruning away stuff that it feels like it doesn't need anymore, connections you've made that aren't being used. But more, most importantly, in that last two hours of sleep, it's consolidating new memories, new things that you've learned, and moving them into longer-term memory. This is a gross simplification, but hopefully you get the idea. So if you've ever had the experience of practicing something, and then you get a crappy night's sleep, you get four hours, six hours, and you come back to it the next day, and it's like you never touched it. You know, the fact that you got a lousy night's uh, sleep is definitely, very definitely a contributing factor to that. So get your eight hours of sleep, right? It's it's interesting you bring that up, too, because another big thing that a lot of, I, I, again, I nerd here but um also like in fitness and everything and in just people's mental health all the things i think people are really really honing in on a good night's sleep on all these benefits so it's really cool that you're mentioning this with practice because it really helps out in all the other aspects like you know living longer <laughs> to play yeah you, know, you can play more yeah. yeah for sure the uh the book by the way it's why we sleep and it's written by matthew walker and i believe matthew uh teaches sleep science at Stanford University. So he knows what he's talking about. And it's a, a, a pretty interesting book. Um, you know, he's got a sense of humor about it. He says that if you're reading his book and it, and, and it puts you to sleep, mission accomplished. He's fine with that. <laughs> so I that pretty neat. But then, you know, when you start to understand all the things in your life, your physical health, your mental health, all the things that sleep has dominion over, um, Boy, you'll never want to get less than like seven and a half hours of sleep ever again in your life. It's really something. So really good book to read. Um, so let's assume we get a good night's sleep. Um, I think it's helpful at the beginning to understand about how we learn and that there are two types of learning that we do. There's implicit learning and there's explicit learning. And so implicit learning, um, the analogy that I offer folks is that this is kind of like learning to ride a bike. You know, you just kind of get on the bike and you figure it out, you know, through some kind of trial and error. It's not a lot of specific detailed thinking about the technique or the mechanics of riding the bike. You usually wind up with a few scraped knees and elbows along the way. But, you know, the end of it, at the end of it, it, it works eventually, you know, sort of. And for a lot of things, it's a perfectly reasonable way uh, to learn things. But let's say um, that you, you're playing tennis or, or basketball or something like that, and you want to get good at it, really good at it. And so you may learn the skills initially in an implicit way without thinking too much about it. But at some point when you decide you want to be serious about it, um, and I'll use tennis as the example, 
um, you know, you might start thinking about um, what effect it will have on your game if you hit the ball a little bit harder, um, how, how it will affect things if you use put some spin on the ball, what you have to do with the racket to get those two things to happen, um, how you start to take control over the depth and the direction of the ball. And so, you know, at some point there, the implicit model starts to fail you because you're not thinking about all the details that go into those types of activities and you hit a plateau, right? And the same thing happens with mandolin playing. If you just uh, repeat a tune and don't think much about it and just repeat it until you can kind of get through it. All right, you know, mission accomplished. You can kind of play it and it may not be with the best tone and it may not necessarily be at the tempo you want it. And so when you hit that plateau, um, that's where you really have to start moving away from implicit learning and starting to get more um, towards the explicit style of learning. And that's, you know, thinking about all the little things that go into producing sound and playing notes in the way that you want them to do. Uh, is your pick hitting the string at just a little bit of an angle? Are your down upstrokes, um, you know, landing where they should? Are you keeping even time in your down upstrokes? Are you carrying tension anywhere in your wrist or your hands or your forearms or shoulders or neck all of those little things combined and so many more all of those little things combine uh you know in a way that will either get you the result that you want or get you to a place that you you don't want but if you're not thinking about all of those little things and making plans to kind of correct things that go wrong in the process uh, that's where that's where you run into trouble. So explicit learning is kind of where we want to be when we're practicing, you know, really any skill, but certainly our mandolin playing. And it's this type of explicit learning, this thoughtful, analytical, problem-solving approach um, to developing our skills um, that that you know, we want to embrace and it, it's actually got a, a new name for a relatively new name um, called deliberate practice, right? That's a term that maybe you or some of your listeners have heard of uh, in the past. And uh, deliberate practice, um, I guess the term itself was coined first by a Swedish um, psychologist by the name of Anders Ericsson in a paper that he wrote back in 1980, in 1993, called The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance. There's a mouthful for you, right? <laughs> but this paper, um, you know, was a, a really interesting one. Malcolm Gladwell, uh, you know, took a look at this and, and wound up writing about it in his book, Outliers. And in Outliers, you know, he offered up the notion that uh, you know, of the 10,000 hour rule. And that became widely popular. Most folks have heard of that. And the 10,000 hour rule, for those who may not be familiar with it, says that if you really want to become an expert at something, you need to invest 10,000 hours of practice to get to that level of expertise. 
And um, what's interesting about the 10,000 hour rule is that Erickson really wasn't so much focused on the amount of time, 10,000 hours, uh, as he was about how that time was spent. So yes, it definitely takes a lot of time to get you to a place where you're truly an expert and a master at a given skill, but it's not a hard and fast 10,000 hours. It's how you spend your time. And the notion that uh, Malcolm Gladwell um, had put this 10,000 hour rule out there without that other piece of it uh, apparently um, irked Erickson to the point where he wrote his own book about it, um, which is a, a great read for anybody who wants to really learn about deliberate practice and what that's all about. The book is called Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Yeah, two thumbs up in my recommendation for that. It's written by Anders Ericsson, and he spells his name E-R-I-C-S-S-O-N, right? Yes, it also comes up when you when you look that up on Amazon. It comes up for Fans of Atomic Habits, which is another book that's come up on this right. uh, uh, on this recently on the podcast a few times. So, Atomic Habits is a great, great book. Highly recommended. Really a good book. But anyway, all this by way of saying... 10,000 hours, don't necessarily get hung up on that. But here's the stuff that you do want to get hung up on. There are really a couple of characteristics to this deliberate practice model, right? You need to kind of define the problem that you're having. You know, I've got a passage that has a bunch of back-to-back -back triplets in it. And I I'm having trouble because the triplets, you know, they cross uh, three of the strings on my instrument. And I'm having trouble keeping my right hand in line when I'm um, playing these triplets across these uh, couple of strings. So that's maybe the definition of my problem. So then you have to analyze the problem. What's going wrong? Am I doubling up on pick strokes when I cross the strings? Something else going wrong? The third element is then to identify uh, some potential solutions, right? What tweaks can I make uh, to this, to the way that I'm playing this thing that will get it to be more like the way I want it to sound. And then the fourth step in the process is to test those solutions and figure out which ones work best, you know, and, it, you know, for example, with my triplets crossing strings, maybe there's a way to play those triplets, um, the majority of them on a single string and only have to cross to another string at the end of the phrase. I don't know, I'm just making this example up, but just to give you a, a sense as to what that solution might look like, and then you test that, and did it work? And of the solutions that you came up with, obviously you'll wanna implement the best one, and then kind of monitor that to make sure that, you know, you can, you can do it consistently and that it's giving you the results that you want on a consistent basis. So if you distill, if you distill all of that into three steps, I think of it as, as a triangle, right? At the top of the triangle, I'm going to kind of plan what I'm going to do, what's my goal, and then the second leg of the triangle is I'm going to play it and see what happens, 
And then the third leg of the triangle is to take a minute and reflect, you know, did it work? If it did, why did it work? Because I don't want to forget it. And if it didn't, why didn't it work? And then I go back to the top of the triangle and try to refine my plan. And it becomes a continuum until I get to the result that I want to get to. Make sense? Totally. Right? I really love, by the way, the analytical thing you mentioned earlier in 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 the triplet example, because as a person who, especially when I first started playing, um, the Mandolin Cafe has got this great resource of um, tab collections. I think the program is called Table, table Edit, Table Edit. I don't know how to pronounce yep. it. However, yep. when people put the notes in sometimes, you'll see that, that it doesn't necessarily really reflect the best finger choice. If somebody went through and said, oh, this is an F and this is a G, um, it could be showing you the the F note, you know, on the tenth fret of the G string, or you know, or the eighth fret, and then you have this big stretch to the third fret to get to the G when it might might have been easier to play it in first position, or it might be easier to move that G up to the tenth fret. And if you look at things like that, sometimes it would really be a thing of like, oh, it's so much easier to play it this way as opposed to how it's just written down. Right, right. That's a great example. It's a great example. And so one of the things I do with my with my own students is encourage them to experiment with everything I teach them, you know, uh, in, in with regard to the fingerings that I'm using, because the fingerings that I'm using work really well for me. But, you know, you might find an easier way to play it that, you know, still gets you to the same result that I'm, I'm getting and, and that I want you to get to. But, you know, maybe your strength is crossing strings. And maybe my fingering that keeps me on a single string until the end doesn't work as well for you for whatever reason, but you get the idea. So yeah, it's really kind of like the scientific method, right? Where, where you formulate a hypothesis and then you run an experiment and you figure out how the experiment went and then you refine your hypothesis. It's really kind of the scientific method brought to mandolin playing. And so you can think of it as a lab and that's the mindset that I think is important to enter your practice session in, right? Mm -hmm. You're going you're gonna to test a bunch of things and see which things work and which things don't and jettison the ones that don't and remember the ones that do. And it takes a lot of, of concentration and mental energy to focus and dial in. I mean, I, I've got students working on just a single bar of music and that might be their focus for a week, but getting everything that goes into playing that single bar really well and expressively and with good tone and good technique and everything that goes into that. And it takes a lot. Um, so I guess one piece of overarching advice is if you decide to go down this rabbit hole of, of practicing in this deliberate way, I would introduce it to the way you normally practice in kind of gradual steps, you know, um, maybe practice as you normally would for 45 minutes during the course of the session and, you know, isolate a few challenge areas and really focus on them in this deliberate iterative way uh, for 15 minutes. And then you can expand from there and until your the bulk of your practice is this analytical you know, very thoughtful, very concentrated way of practicing things. And I think what you find out is 
over time um, that you actually get to spend a little less time practicing because the gains that you make from practice session to practice session become more appreciable and, and uh, you know, take place in, in bigger and bigger increments. So, yeah. Um, and, and then as part of this process too, I think there's some tools that you should have. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, please. All right. So up in the, up at the top of that triangle, you know, we talked about planning and one thing that I always encourage my students to do is to never enter a practice session without a, a plan about what you're going to accomplish in that session. Right. And the more detailed the plan, the better. I have a little notebook. I have one of those little marble uh, notebooks that you can buy in a stationery store for like a buck. And I have a plan going into each practice session. What am I going to work on? How much time am I going to spend on it? What are the challenges I'm having with each of the things that I'm going to work on? Um, and then, you know, then I can start to write down what some potential solutions might be for each one of those, um, those challenges that I'm having. And then I get to step two in the triangle and I'll actually start practicing. Right. And, and here I'm, I'm going to suggest a tool that I think is really critical, um, especially for anyone listening to this podcast that doesn't have a, uh, you know, a teacher that they go to on a regular basis in, in some kind of live or uh, Zoom kind of way, right? And that's the reflection piece of this. When we get to the reflect piece, um, we really need some feedback so that we can correct things in the moment and not end up reinforcing things that we're doing that may be sabotaging us. So let me give you an example. I've got my plan. And I make an attempt at it. And here I want to turn the video recorder on on my phone. And I want to take a little video. It doesn't have to be a, a long thing. It doesn't have to be anything that I'm going to keep for any length of time. But I really want to capture that video. And then in that third leg of the triangle, I'm going to look at that video from a bunch of different perspectives. Right. The first time I look at it, I might be focused on my right hand or my pick strokes landing where they need to. Right. I'm going to take a look at it again and just notice my overall posture. Am I tense? Am I planting my hand anywhere that I shouldn't be? Are, are my shoulders shrugged up because I'm so uh, you know, carrying so much tension in my neck. I might look at it again and look at, start dialing in on my left hand and are, where are my fingers in relation to the frets, right? All those little things, uh, you know, back of the right hand, is my pick hitting the string a little bit of an angle or is it kind of hitting the string perpendicular and, and, and maybe slowing me down and not giving me the tone that I want? You know, there's so many things that go into just playing a, a run of, say, four notes. When you when you really think about it, what pitch am I supposed to play? Where is that pitch on my instrument? What rhythm is it supposed to be played at? Um, you know, what volume is it supposed to be played at? Do I want it to sound, you know, full and rich or maybe sharp and punchy? All these little things. And, and when you're doing them, it, 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 all these things are taking place in your head in about a millisecond's worth of time, right? 
if you don't video record yourself, you're going to miss something. There's a great video out there on the interwebs called the monkey business illusion. And if you want proof that video recording is a good idea, look that up and take a look at it. When I show this illusion to somebody, um, you know, they'll miss at least one of those things. And the same thing happens in your playing. You know, you may think it kind of sounds okay, but you're missing the fact that your finger is just backed off the fret a little bit consistently, and it's making that note buzz in the middle of, of what you're playing. And you may not be aware of it because you're focused exclusively on, on making sure that you're not doubling up on pick strokes. You know, these are just examples, again, that I'm making up, but hopefully you get the idea. If you video record yourself and you have the opportunity to kind of check in and really get an accurate picture of where the challenges are, then when you get back up to the top, the peak of the triangle, uh, then you have some concrete things to focus on as you refine your plan and try to implement different solutions that might you know, take care of those challenges. If you don't video record yourself, you're kind of flying blind. You're relying on what your ear tells you, but your ear is going to miss one or more of those details. So I can't stress enough the importance of uh, just checking in on yourself now and then by turning the video camera on on your phone or starting a Zoom session uh, for yourself and, and recording yourself on Zoom, whatever you know method you use to, to make that recording uh, really is of little consequence, but definitely make the recording and check in and start to get very analytical about what you're doing and what needs to be improved. And you'll be amazed at what you find out. It's, it's a, going back to that 10,000 hours too. It's really good to, to do that even just every now and again, if you don't do it often, because you know, doing 10,000, doing something for 10,000 hours poorly, just means yeah. just means you're you're really right. good at doing it badly. <laughs> you know, right. Right. I mean, you know, there's that old there's that old adage that practice makes perfect, and I don't think that's necessarily as true as um, you know a revision on it that would say practice makes permanent, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you don't you don't want to practice things that you're doing incorrectly, right? So, you know, it's 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 just a, a little thing to do, but so important. Turn the video recorder on and just take a 30 second sample of, of what you're playing and dial in. And you will be amazed at the little details, the things that are escaping your attention in the moment while you're playing that you pick up on when you have the opportunity to kind of look back and review the performance. And I know recording can be, you know, kind of an intimidating thing for some folks. You know, this isn't a recording that you have to share with anybody. You don't have to post it out to social media. You don't have to share it. It's for you and you alone. And then once you've gained the insight that you'll you'll get from looking at the video recording, you can delete it. But, you know, I have friends that are so into this process of recording um, in this way, as they practice that, um, I have one friend who, who tells me categorically, if you aren't recording, you aren't practicing for him. It's, it's as simple as that. 
And then there's a, one of the guys I, I've uh, had the great good fortune to study with uh, is a guy named Jason Haheim, and he's a, a percussionist with the New York Met. And he takes it to the extreme where he, um, he records every practice session uh, that he does, and he uploads it to iTunes with all his notes about the goals that he's, uh, you know, striving for, the, the, the uh, corrective actions that he wants to test, what the results were, what worked, what didn't. And, and he uploads all of that uh, to iTunes so that, you know, say the Met uh, does a performance of a piece this year, and then they don't touch it again, but maybe seven years down the road, it comes back into the repertoire. Well, now he can go into iTunes, he can search that tune, and up pops all the videos of his practice sessions on that tune, all the little things he did that finally got him to the point where he could play it in a satisfying way. You know, so he's he's an animal with this stuff. But, you know, even if you don't take it to that extreme, really, uh, you know, and, and not to beat a dead horse here, but start getting in the habit of recording yourself. It's critical in that third leg of this deliberate practice model. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. every time I think I've got something down and I videotape it to watch it back, it's it's not as down as I think it is all the time. Yeah all the time. I find things that I can make better all the time. And in doing this podcast, one of the things I never focused on, you know, and I'll, you know, it was a vulnerability for me for sure was I never focused really so much on great, great tone or changing tone. I just figured, well, this is my tone and this is how I sound when I play. And then as I started this podcast and started talking to all these great players like yourself and asking advice, about you know the tone thing kept coming up and why do you how do you work on tone and then working on those things you're like man you can you can make yourself sound better than you think if you think you're never going to sound amazing you just move it around man yeah just listen to somebody like mike marshall who is so in you know expressive in his playing in in the in the course of one pass through a tune he might play a phrase that's really fat and sweet sounding and then in the next breath you know he's back near the bridge you know playing playing part of of the tune uh in a way that sounds really punchy and kind of in your face and really it's all that expression and and the control over your over your volume and and where your hand is in relation to the bridge all those little things and lots and lots of us uh don't really you know, pay a, a whole bunch of attention to that. But, you know, if if you want to, you know, aspire to the, the level of playing that your heroes uh, play with, you know, this is a great way to get there. Be, you know, be very analytical in what you're doing and, and, and you know, conscious, really focused on, on the details and maybe uh, not get so hung up on the end result. Right. Right. So that's kind of the deliberate practice model. I mean, there's so much more. And, you know, I understand that we're kind of constrained by time. I, I give workshops on this stuff <laughs> that, go, that go literally a week in length. And sometimes I feel like that still isn't enough time because there are so many other things that we could talk about 
um, you know, different modalities of practice, blocked practice versus serial practice versus interleaved practice and, and why, uh, you know, what those strategies are and, you know, when it's appropriate to use each one. But, you know, another thing that I really wanted to stress in the time that we have left is the importance of trying to balance out what you practice in a given practice session, right? So um, when students walk through my door, uh, they generally fall into uh, one of a few different camps. I get students that have some tunes that they play and they play those tunes and, and that's great. But if I ask them to play a C major scale, they kind of look at me with, you know, eyes that are glazed over and, and a sense of panic <laughs> crosses their face. <laughs> Right. Or, you know, then I get I get students and oftentimes these are guys that come from more of a jazz orientation and they can play scales and arpeggios up and down the fretboard and they're great with it. And I'm like, great, let's pick a tune. Uh, what's your favorite tune? And that's when the panic hits their face. Right. <laughs> yeah. They put all their all their effort into learning scales and arpeggios and working on their right hand and stuff like that. But they don't know any tunes. So what I encourage, you know, my students to, to try and be mindful of is, is balancing these things out. And I think about putting uh, things in different, different little buckets, right? So one bucket might be new material that you're just learning. And, you know, in this little bucket, I'm, I'm really just trying to figure out where my fingers need to be, um, you know, what the piece kind of sounds like well, you know what does my right hand have to do in order to play this this piece you know just really laying the groundwork in that bucket and then eventually i kind of have uh, a concept developed of how i'm going to play this piece and so now that kind of falls into the developing material bucket and here since i have the framework for how i'm going to play it this is where i can start to think about you know, increasing my tempo or really refining what kind of tone I want to pull out of the tune and in what places, you know, dynamic expression and things like that. There's a bunch of other stuff that goes into each one of these, but just, you know, at a high level. Um, so initially just kind of developing a roadmap for the tune and then trying starting to refine it and get it up to tempo. And then there's stuff that falls into the you know, performance ready bucket. And this is stuff that you've worked on for, uh, you know, for quite a while and you've got it to a place where, um, you know, you wouldn't be uh, embarrassed to play it in front of your family or friends or at an open mic or at a gig or, or at Carnegie hall or wherever you're playing. Um, you know, and, and <laughs> the thing that kind of amazes me in, in this area uh, with some of my students is that they'll, will work, weeks at a time on a piece and then they finally get it to a place that's really really good and really satisfying and then we move on and we tackle the next project and and uh so a couple of months later i'll say hey remember that tune we did a few months ago why don't we play that together and the look of panic crosses their face <laughs> because they haven't they haven't touched it, right? Don't be that guy. You've invested all this time into working on it and getting it to sound beautiful. Don't let it go. So I, you know, 
if, if I'm kind of setting up a practice plan for myself, I want to spend a little bit of time in each one of those areas, working on brand new material, working on material that I've started, but I need to kind of refine it, and then touching stuff that I already know so that I don't forget it, right? Kind of makes sense. So those are my three kind of material buckets. And then I'm going to add a fourth bucket into my plan, and that's my my technique bucket, for lack of a, you know, a, a better way of describing it. But this is where I'm going to practice um, right-hand exercises. By the way, you mentioned David Benedict before. Uh, he's certainly one of my mandolin heroes. I really, um, I'm really thankful that he's out there doing as much for the community as he is. And he just uh, released, I think it was last week, a series of 31 uh, different right hand exercises that that you know are just great and um, and so you know this is the bucket this technique bucket is the place where you want to work on right hand technique and then maybe some some exercises for developing finger independence and dexterity and here I th there's a book um, written by a guy named uh, Oscar Schradick. Uh, it's a violin book. He wrote three uh, instruction books. One was on bowing technique. Another was, um, I think, on scales. But the first book was on um, developing dexterity and finger strength. And this book is a complete game changer. It's completely accessible uh, to mandolin players. There's nothing in the book that is, you know, really, truly unique to violin playing. So Oscar Schradick, book one. Um, and if you're looking for some great left hand, uh, finger busters, if you will, uh, look no further than this book. Um, so that's a great one. Um, working on your shifting right here. I, I like my, probably my favorite book on that topic is, uh, written by a guy named Yost, Y-O-S-T. Oh, I just bought that book. Yeah. No joke. I just bought book. it last week. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very short little book, um, but and and what I like about it is that it works just on the mechanics of getting your fingers from one position to the next. Not necessarily, uh, you know, other books um, uh, in that in that genre uh, kind of take you right into etudes and studies and like tunes that require you to shift. But the thing I really love about Yost is how do I get from my first finger playing an F sharp on my E string to my third finger playing a B note uh, on my E string in, um, you know, in, 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 in a different position. So Yoast is a, a great book for doing that. So shifting right hand stuff, left hand stuff, scales, arpeggios. And why do you want to spend time doing this? Because if you focus solely on tunes, eventually you're going to get to a point where you want to take on something that's kind of challenging. And you're going to find out that because you've neglected the technique piece of things, your technique isn't there. It, you just don't have what, what's required to play this piece in your, in your toolbox. So I'm a big believer in spending a little time in each practice session working on some aspect of your fundamental technique, right? And then there's even 
a fifth bucket that, you know, lots of folks kind of don't think a lot about, but this is stuff that you can do away from your instrument, right? Matt Glazer, um, the great uh, violinist and, and uh, kind of creator of the American Roots Music Program up at the Berkeley School of Music, um, I've heard him say that if, if you want to really be a musician, you need to think about some aspect of music in every waking moment that you spend. Right. And that may be, I don't know, a little extreme for a lot of us, but I think he's on to something there because certainly, um, you know, we're used to practicing with the instrument in our hands and, and, you know, putting the time and the work into that. But we can also do things away from the instrument that, you know, count in pretty substantial ways as well. So, for example, um, back in the days when CDs were a thing, I had a couple of CDs that were all about ear training. And on my commutes around town and here and there, I'd pop those CDs and I'd do ear training exercises while I was driving. That was really helpful. Um, you know, you could kind of get random with it or, you know, and think about little little exercises or games that you could make up and play while you were, you know, taking a shower. You might quiz yourself about what uh, a two, five, one progression is around the circle of fifths while you're, you know, lathering up and getting your <laughs> Cleaning for the day, right? Right. You get the idea. I was I was uh, telling f a group of folks at, at this uh, camp up in Saratoga about little games that I would play like this while I was behind the wheel, and um, the the following year I'm back at this uh, camp and I'm picking up my my little performers pass as I'm checking in and I hear this voice behind me saying, "Oh, I remember you." I took your, your workshop on practicing last year. You're the guy that's a distracted driver, you know? <laughs> so great. That's, that's what she remembered. That was a real moment of pride for me. But, yeah. uh, but you get the idea, right? There Absolutely. Things, things like that, that you can do ear training. Um, you know, I, I like to read books about different musicians that I admire. I've read uh, biographies on Bach and Miles Davis and Bill Monroe. And I think those are helpful, you know, in that if you have an understanding of who some of these people are and what things they went through that helped them to form the music that you listen to and that you admire, you know, maybe you can bring a little of that thought process or that emotion to the way that you play their music and, and, you know, um, so I think that's really valuable. Critical listening, you know, or uh, I think another term for this is orchestral listening, where you're um, not just listening to music as a background to some other thing that you're doing, but really sitting and dialing in on what is that mandolin player doing? You know, how is he approaching his rhythm playing? You know, um, what am I hearing? in his phrasing that I want to emulate that, that type of thing. So really trying as best you can to get your ear trained to dial into the specifics of what the mandolin player is doing. So that's something else that you can do away from your instrument. And then another great thing that athletes have been doing for years is um, this notion of mental practice, 
where you mentally practice, as the name implies, uh, you know, a, a passage, a phrase, um, something that you're working on. And it turns out that there's a body of science behind this that says that the human brain is pretty lousy at distinguishing <laughs> between real and imagined experience. And so one study uh, that I read, for example, um, a group of researchers, and for the life of me, I, I'll, I'll never understand why, but they wanted to understand um, the effects of mental practice on strengthening um, a, a person's pinky, right? So they had a group of, of people and they divided this group of people in half and they gave one group a series of physical exercises to do with their pinky to see if they could strengthen it. And then they taught those same exercises to the second group of people um, on, on one day of the study, but then they weren't allowed to do the physical, you know, exercises anymore. They could only imagine doing the exercises. And what blew my mind is that the group that just imagined doing the exercises came within about 20% of making the same strength gains that the physical exercise group had done. Right. Right. Wow. it's just, yeah, it's amazing. There are all kinds of studies, and you can literally change the physical structure of your brain by imagining things differently. All kinds of studies on this, and we I'm probably don't have time to get into that. But, you know, a, a guidelines for, for good mental practice, you know, try to make the experience as vivid as you possibly can. Feel the resistance uh, in your imagination that each string um, poses on imposes on the pick as you hit the string. Try to imagine the feeling, the different sensations that you would have on your fingers between wound strings and plain steel strings, right? Um, you know, try to hear what's coming out of your instrument as vividly as you can. It's a great help if you can kind of think of yourself as a cameraman and view things from outside your body. So instead of imagining Imagining things um, from within yourself, you know, uh, take a look at yourself from a distance and notice what's going on. Um, all these little, and this is, a, again, a, a much bigger topic that we could spend lots of time on. But mental practice is a really great and really helpful thing to do. And there's a, another uh, a great teacher, a woman by the name of Molly Gebrian. She teaches out of the University of Arizona. She's a violist. Insert your viola jokes here. <laughs> um, but she also has a degree in neuroscience. And she talks about how um, the combination of mental practice with physical practice is like a, a way to supercharge you're you're practicing so the way she implements it she'll practice a piece of music she hits she comes to a part that's challenging for her and she'll stop her physical practice and try to imagine as vividly as she possibly can what what's taking place with her fingers and her bow um to to play this challenging passage uh correctly and then she'll go back and make an attempt at it with physical practice and the combination of the two, uh, she swears by, and apparently, 
Molly doesn't do too many things that don't have science to back them. So there's some uh, some research that backs this approach to practicing too. So anyway, mental practice, another thing uh, that you can do while you're away from your instrument. You could bring uh, a score or a piece of printed music to work with you and just try to analyze it during your lunch hour. You know, um, oh, look, I'm playing an E chord and this part of the melody is really just tracking, uh, you know, an E arpeggio with some tones that lead into the next chord. You get the idea. Absolutely. Again, That's one of my favorite ones. I, I use um with that one. If I print it up, I use like colored pencils. And uh, this is so nerdy, but I use colored pencils for notes that are in the chords and yep. then use a different colored pencil for notes that are outside especially if it's a thing something i hear and i'm like i would have never thought to play that why does that sound so interesting and then i'm like oh that's why it sounds interesting it's you know there you go yeah man yeah. this is this has been awesome i am so stoked to practice <laughs> really <laughs> i am really i just I, I feel like reinvigorated right now this is so great and now yeah. and you offer lessons obviously that's kind of how kind of how I, I i saw your ad there on the cafe so if want, people want to get in touch with you What's the best way to do it? Yeah, I mean, um, probably just through my website or drop me an email, uh, Wayne at WayneFugate.com, and that'll get to me. Um, I'm also going to be giving, you know, much more extensive uh, workshops at a couple of festivals and camps around uh, this summer. I know just off the top of my head, I know I'm going to be in Westminster, Maryland, uh, doing this for um, uh, the, the, the there's a three week um, a series of workshops and kind of a festival around that called Common Ground on the Hill, and within that there's a special track uh, just for mandolin players uh, called Mandolins on the Hill. So I'll be doing a practice session for Mandolins on the Hill down in West Westminster, Maryland. Um, and uh, that's a great one, really beautiful campus. Last year, uh, Mike Marshall and Katarina were there, Frank Sullivan and his great band, uh, they were there. Um, so they get some really great mandolin players and there are courses on everything from uh, you know, playing blues on the mandolin to whatever you wanna know about theory to, you know, to learning how to practice it all. Um, so I'll be doing that one. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be back at uh, Jay Unger's camp uh, up at Ashokan. It's a really, really beautiful, special, special place um, up there at Ashokan. Jay and Molly have really put together something beautiful. And there are others uh, as well that are, of course, escaping my mind as I try to recall them now in the moment. But but yeah, I'm, I'm out there and hopefully, um, you know, doing more and more of this because as i said my experience whenever i give these workshops is that there's a pretty big appetite for it and people genuinely seem to appreciate um you know getting this kind of information so hopefully you know as i get myself more out there there will be other opportunities uh that present themselves um and and we all become a little more aware of you know, how to, how to improve our playing and get down the road farther and faster towards our goals, uh, you know, through the implementation of some of these strategies. Well, we need to, we need to do this again. I think there's probably more that we probably haven't even touched on yet. 
Oh, Dan, be careful of what you wish for. <laughs> I, I, you'll be, you'll need to call in a SWAT team and hostage <laughs> negotiators if you really, if you really wind me up on this stuff. <laughs> I do have one more question though. Yeah, you're a yeah. Giants fan. What beer will you be drinking this weekend? I'm a Giants fan. Um, you know, I'm not sure. My brother got both the beer drinking genes in our family. Um, <laughs> And and given the fact that the Giants always keep you on the edge of your seat until the last three seconds of a game, I've found that a really nice bourbon is helpful. <laughs> Perfect. In, yeah, it, it, that's that's what's really helpful in getting yourself through the typical Giants game. Do you have a favorite bourbon? Yeah, I I you know I mean there's Makers and 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 Bullet and that kind of stuff, but my real favorite bourbons are made by. Um, a company in Chicago, a little distillery in Chicago called uh, Koval, K-O-V-A-L. They make a really lovely bourbon. Um, and then there's another one out um, in Utah uh, called High West. They make a, a, a nice bourbon and a nice rye. And yeah, I like Woodford Reserve and Eagle Rare. There's a bunch of them out there. But yeah, that's that's definitely what I'll be drinking this week as my <laughs> Giants. Please note that I'm taking ownership of the Giants as my Giants take on uh, their arch rival, the Philadelphia Eagles. It's going to be a great weekend of football. Oh, for me, yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Well, Wayne, this has been a total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing the podcast, man. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really honored to be uh you know to have contributed this little episode to to this really beautiful thing that you've built over the years i've i've been a big fan and followed your podcast from its beginnings to uh to present day and you just do such a wonderful job with these things and it's such a service uh to all of us who play the mandolin so you know thanks right back to you for all the amazing work that you do and, and you know for, all of our benefit. Oh man, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. Well, hopefully we'll we will pick together sometime in the future. Yeah, here, here. All right, let's make that happen. All right, thank you so much to Wayne. Pick up your mandolins. Let's let's go get some practice, and that's what I'm headed to do now. Everybody, have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.